0: Volume 2, Chapter 20 of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Volume 2, Chapter 20. Come ye hither, my six good sons, gallant men I trow ye be. How many of you, my children dear, will stand by that good earl and me? Five of them did answer make five of them spoke hastily o father till the day we die we'll stand by that good earl and thee the rising in the north on the morning when we were to depart from glasgow andrew fairservice bounced into my apartment like a madman jumping up and down and singing with more vehemence than tune the kiln's on fire the kiln's on fire the kiln's on fire she's in a low with some difficulty i prevailed upon him to cease his confounded clamour and explain to me what the matter was he was pleased to inform me as if he had been bringing the finest news imaginable that the highlands were clean broken out every man of them and that rob roy and his brakeless bands would be down upon glasgow or twenty-four hours or the clock go round hold your tongue said i you rascal you must be drunk or mad and if there is any truth in your news is it a singing matter you scoundrel drunk or mad no doubt replied andrew dauntlessly and I's drunk or mad if he tells ye what good it folks dinna like to hear sing ah the clans would be make us sing in the wrong side of our mouth if we are say drunk or mad as to bide their coming i rose in great haste and found my father and owen also on foot and in considerable alarm andrew's news proved but too true in the main the great rebellion which agitated britain in the year seventeen fifteen had already broken out but by the unfortunate Earl of Mars setting up of the standard of the Stuart family in an ill-omened hour, to the ruin of many honourable families, both in England and Scotland, the treachery of some of the Jacobite agents Rashleigh among the rest, and the arrest of others—had made George the I government acquainted with the extensive ramifications of conspiracy long prepared, and which at last exploded prematurely, and in a part of the kingdom too distant to have any vital effect upon the country which, however, was plunged into much confusion. This great public event served to confirm and elucidate the obscure explanations I had received from MacGregor, and I could easily see why the Western clans who were brought against him should have waived their private quarrel in consideration that they would all shortly be engaged in the same public cause. It was a more melancholy reflection to my mind that Diana Vernon was the wife of one of those who were most active in turning the world upside down, and that she was herself exposed to all the privations and perils of her husband's hazardous trade. We held an immediate consultation of the measures we were to adopt in this crisis, and acquiesced in my father's plan that we should instantly get the necessary passports and make the best of our way to London. I acquainted my father with my wish to offer my personal service to the government in any volunteer call, several being already spoken of. He readily acquiesced to my proposal for though he disliked war as a profession, yet, upon principle, no man would have exposed his life more willingly in defence of civil and religious liberty. We travelled in haste and in peril through Dumfriesshire and the neighbouring counties of England. In this quarter, gentlemen of the Tory interest were already in motion, mustering men and horses, while the Whigs assembled themselves in the principal towns, armed the inhabitants, and prepared for civil war. We narrowly escaped being stopped on more occasions than one and were often compelled to take circuitous routes to avoid the points where forces were assembling when we reached london we immediately associated with those bankers and eminent merchants who agreed to support the credit of government and to meet that run upon the funds on which the conspirators had greatly founded their hopes of furthering their undertaking by rendering the government as it were bankrupt my father was chosen one of the members of this formidable body in the moneyed interest as all had the greatest confidence in his zeal, skill, and activity. He was also the organ by which they communicated with the government, and contrived from funds belonging to his own house, or over which he had command, to find purchasers for a quantity of the national stock, which was suddenly flung into the market at a depreciated price when the rebellion broke out. I was not idle myself but obtained a commission, and levied at my father's expense about two hundred men, with whom I joined General Carpenter's army. The rebellion, in the meantime, had extended itself to England. The unfortunate Earl of Derwentwater had taken arms in the cause, along with General Foster. My poor uncle, Sir Hildebrand, whose estate was reduced to almost nothing by his own carelessness and the expense and debauchery of his sons and household, was easily persuaded to join that unfortunate standard. Before doing so, however, he exhibited a degree of precaution of which no one could have suspected him. He made his will. By the document he devised his estates at Abaldistone Hall, and so forth to his sons successively and their male heirs, until he came to Rashleigh, whom, on account of the turn he had lately taken in politics, he detested with all his might. He cut him off with a shilling, and settled the estate on me as his next heir. I had always been rather a favorite of the old gentleman, but it is probable that, confident in the number of gigantic youths who now armed around him, he considered the destination as likely to remain a dead letter, which he inserted chiefly to show his displeasure at Rochelay's treachery, both public and domestic. There was an article by which he bequeathed to the niece of his late wife, Diana Vernon, now Lady Diana Vernon Beauchamp, some diamonds belonging to her late aunt. And a great silver ewer, having the arms of Vernon and Osbaldistone quarterly engraven upon it. But Heaven had decreed a more speedy extinction of his numerous and healthy lineage, than most probably he himself had reckoned on. In the very first muster of the conspirators, at a place called Green Rig, Thorncliff Osbaldistone quarrelled about precedence with a gentleman of the Northumbrian border, to the full as fierce and intractable as himself. In spite of all remonstrances, they gave their commander a specimen of how far their discipline might be relied upon by fighting it out with their rapiers, and my kinsman was killed on the spot. His death was a great loss to Sir Hildebrand, for, notwithstanding his infernal temper, he had a grain or two of more sense than belonged to the rest of the brotherhood. Rashleigh always accepted. Percival, the sot, died also in his calling. He had a wager with another gentleman who, from his exploits in that line, had acquired the formidable epithet of Brandy Swalewell, which should drink the largest cup of strong liquor when King James was proclaimed by the insurgents at Morpeth. The exploit was something enormous. I forgot the exact quantity of brandy which Percy swallowed, but it occasioned a fever, of which he expired at the end of three days, with the word, Water, water, perpetually on his tongue. Dickon broke his neck near Warrington Bridge, in an attempt to show off a foundered blood mare which he wished to palm upon a Manchester merchant who had joined the insurgents. He pushed the animal at a five-barred gate, she fell in the leap, and the unfortunate jockey lost his life. Wilfred, the fool, as sometimes befalls, had the best fortune of the family. He was slain at Proud Preston, in Lancashire, on the day that General Carpenter attacked the barricades, fighting with great bravery though I have heard he was never able exactly to comprehend the cause of the quarrel, and did not uniformly remember on which king's side he was engaged. John also behaved very boldly in the same engagement, and received several wounds, of which he was not happy enough to die on the spot. Old Sir Hildebrand, entirely broken-hearted by these successive losses, became, by the next day's surrender, one of the unhappy prisoners, and was lodged in Newgate with his wounded son John. I was now released from my military duty, and lost no time, therefore, in endeavouring to relieve the distresses of these new relations. My father's interest with government, and the general compassion excited by a parent who had sustained the successive loss of so many sons within so short a time, would have prevented my uncle and cousin from being brought to trial for high treason. But their doom was given forth from a greater tribunal. John died of his wounds in Newgate recommending to me in his last breath a cast of hawks which he had at the hall and a black spaniel bitch called Lucy. My poor uncle seemed beaten down to the very earth by his family calamities, and the circumstances in which he unexpectedly found himself. He said little, but seemed grateful for such attentions as circumstances permitted me to show him. I did not witness his meeting with my father for the first time for so many years, and under circumstances so melancholy but, judging from my father's extreme depression of spirits, it must have been melancholy in the last degree. Sir Hildebrand spoke with great bitterness against Rashleigh, now his only surviving child, laid upon him the ruin of his house and the death of all his brethren, and declared that neither he nor they would have plunged into political intrigue but for that very member of his family, who had been the first to desert them. He once or twice mentioned Diana, always with great affection, and once he said, while I sat by his bedside, "'Nevoy since Thorncliff, and all of them are dead. I am sorry you cannot have her.'" The expression affected me much at the time, for it was a usual custom of the poor old baronet, when joyously setting forth upon the morning's chase, to distinguish Thorncliffe, who was a favourite, while he summoned the rest more generally. And the loud, jolly tone in which he used a hello Call Thorney! Call all of them!—contrasted sadly with the well-begone and self-abandoning note in which he uttered the disconsolate words which I have above quoted. He mentioned the contents of his will, and supplied me with an authenticated copy. The original he had deposited with my old acquaintance, Mr. Justice Inglewood, who, dreaded by no one, and confided in by all as a kind of neutral person, had become for aught I know the despotary and half the wills of the fighting-men of both factions in the country of Northumberland. The greater part of my uncle's last hours was spent in the discharge of the religious duties of his church, in which he was directed by the chaplain of the Sardinian ambassador, for whom, with some difficulty, we obtained permission to visit him. I could not ascertain by my own observation, or through the medical attendance, that Sir Hildebrand of died of any formed complaint bearing a name in the science of medicine. He seemed to me completely worn out and broken by fatigue of body and distress of mind, and rather ceased to exist than died of any positive struggle. Just as a vessel, buffeted and tossed by a succession of tempestuous gales, her timbers overstrained and her joints loosened, will sometimes spring a leak and founder, when there are no apparent causes for her destruction. It was a remarkable circumstance that my father, after the last duties were performed by his brother, appeared suddenly to imbibe a strong anxiety that I should act upon the will, and represent his father's house, which had hitherto seemed to be the thing in the world which had least charms for him. But formerly, as he had been like the fox in the fable, contemning what was beyond his reach, and, moreover, I doubt not that the excessive dislike which he entertained against now Sir Roshley, of who loudly threatened to attack his father Sir Hildebrand's will and settlement, corroborated my father's desire to maintain it. "'He has been most unjustly disinherited,' he said, "'by his own father. His brother's will had repaired the disgrace, if not the injury, by leaving the wreck of his property to Frank, the natural heir, and he was determined the bequest should take effect.' "'In the meantime,' Rochelet was not altogether a contemptible personage as an opponent. The information he had given to government was critically well-timed, and his extreme plausibility, with the extent of his intelligence, and the artful manner in which he contrived to assume both merit and influence, had, to a certain extent, procured him patrons among ministers. We were already in the full tide of litigation with him on the subject of his pillaging the firm of a in Tresham. And judging from the progress we had made in that comparatively simple lawsuit, there was a chance that this second course of litigation might be drawn out beyond the period of all our natural lives. To avert these delays as much as possible, my father, by the advice of his counsel learned in the law, paid off and vested in my person the rights to certain large mortgages affecting a hall. Perhaps, however, the opportunity to convert a great share of the large profits which accrued from the rapid rise of the funds upon the suppression of the rebellion and the experience he had so lately had of the perils of commerce encouraged him to realize in this manner a considerable part of his property. At any rate, it so chanced that, instead of commanding me to the desk as I fully expected, having intimated my willingness to comply with his wishes, however they might destine me, I received his directions to go down to Obaldistone Hall, and take possession of it as the heir and representative of the family. I was directed to apply to Squire Inglewood for the copy of my uncle's will, deposit it with him, and take all necessary measures to secure that possession which sages say makes nine points of the law. At another time I should have been delighted with this change of destination, but now Obaldistone Hall was accompanied with many painful recollections. "'Still, however, I thought that in the neighbourhood "'I was likely to acquire some information "'respecting the fate of Diana Vernon. "'I had every reason to fear it must be far different "'from what I could have wished it. "'But I could obtain no precise information on the subject. "'It was in vain that I endeavoured, "'by such acts of kindness as their situation admitted, "'to conciliate the confidence of some distant relations "'who were among the prisoners in Newgate.' a pride which I could not condemn, and a natural suspicion of the Whig Frank of cousin to the double-distilled traitor Rochelay, closed every heart and tongue, and I only received thanks cold and extorted in exchange for such benefits as I had power to offer. The arm of the law was also gradually abridging the numbers of those whom I endeavored to serve, and the hearts of the survivors became gradually more contracted towards all whom they conceived to be concerned with the existing government, as they were led gradually and by detachments to execution. Those who survived lost interest in mankind, and the desire of communicating with them. I shall long remember what one of them, Ned Shafton by name, replied to my anxious inquiry, whether there were any indulgence I could procure him. Mr. Frank of Alderstone, I must suppose you mean me kindly, and therefore I thank you— but, but, God, gee, men can't be fattened like poultry when they see their neighbors carried off day by day to the place of execution and know that their own necks are to be twisted round in their turn. Upon the whole, therefore, I was glad to escape from London, from Newgate, and from the scenes which both exhibited, to breathe the free air of Northumberland. Andrew Fair service had continued in my service more from my father's pleasure than my own. At present there seemed a prospect that his local acquaintance with the Balderstone Hall and its vicinity might be useful, and of course he accompanied me on my journey, and I enjoyed the prospect of getting rid of him by establishing him in his old quarters. I cannot conceive how he could prevail upon my father to interest himself in him, unless it were by the art, which he possessed no inconsiderable degree, of affecting an extreme attachment to his master— which a theoretical attachment had made compatible in practice with playing all manner of tricks without scruple providing only against his master being cheated by any one but himself we performed our journey to the north without any remarkable adventure and we found the country so lately agitated by rebellion now peaceful and in good order the nearer we approached to abalstone hall the more did my heart sink at the thought of entering that deserved mansion so that, in order to postpone the evil day, I resolved first to make my visit to Mr. Justice Inglewood's. That venerable person had been much disturbed with thoughts of what he had been, and what he now was, and natural recollections of the past had interfered considerably with the active duty which his present situation might have been expected from him. He was fortunate, however, in one respect. He had got rid of his clerk, Jobson, who had finally left him in dudgeon at his inactivity, and became legal assistant to a certain Squire Standish, who had lately commenced operation in those parts as a justice, with a zeal for King George and the Protestant succession, which, very different from the feelings of his old patron, Mr. Jobson had more occasion to restrain within the bounds of the law, than to stimulate to exertion. Old Justice Inglewood received me with great courtesy, and readily exhibited my uncle's will which seemed to be without a flaw. He was for some time in obvious distress how he should speak and act in my presence, but when he found that, though a supporter of the present government upon principle, I was disposed to think with pity on those who had opposed it on a mistaken feeling of loyalty and duty. His discourse became a very diverting medley of what he had done, and what he had left undone, the pains he had taken to prevent some squires from joining, and to wink at the escape of others, who had been so unlucky as to engage in the affair. We were tete-tete, and several bumpers had been quaffed by the Justice's special desire, when, on a sudden, he requested me fill a bona fide brimmer to the health of poor dear Di Vernon, the heath-bell of Cheviot, and the blossom that's transplanted to an infernal convent. "'Is not Miss Vernon married, then?' I exclaimed in great astonishment. "'I thought His Excellency—' pooh pooh his excellency and his lordship all a humbug now you know mere saint germain's titles earl of beauchamp and ambassador plenipotentiary from france when the duke regent of Orleans scarce knew that he lived i dare say but you must have seen old sir frederick vernon at the hall when he played the part of father vaughan good heavens then vaughan was miss vernon's father to be sure he was said the justice coolly there's no use in keeping the secret now for he must be out of the country by this time otherwise no doubt it would be my duty to apprehend him come off with your bumper to my dear lost die and let her health go round and around around and let her health go round for though your stocking be of silk your knees near kiss the ground a ground a ground footnote this pithy verse occurs it is believed in shadwell's play of bury fair "'I was unable, as a reader may easily conceive, "'to join in the Justice's jollity. "'My head swam with the shock I had received. "'I never heard,' I said, "'that Miss Vernon's father was living.' "'It was not our government's fault that he is,' "'replied Inglewood. "'For the devil a man there is "'whose head would have brought more money. "'He was condemned to death for Fenwick's plot, "'and was thought to have some hand "'in the Knightsbridge affair, "'in King William's time.' and as he had married in Scotland a relation of the house of Bradlebane, he possessed great influence with all their chiefs. There was a talk of his being demanded to be given up at the Peace of Ryswick, but he shammed ill, and his death was given publicly out in the French papers. But when he came back here on the old score, we old cavaliers knew him well. That is to say, I knew him, not as being a cavalier myself, but no information being lodged against the poor gentleman and my memory being shortened by frequent attacks of the gout, I could not have sworn to him, you know. Was he then not known at Abaldistone Hall? I inquired. To none but to his daughter, the old knight, and Roshley, who had got at that secret as he did at every one else's, and held it like a twisted cord about poor Di's neck. I have seen her one hundred times she would have spit at him, if it had not been fear for her father. "'whose life would not have been worth five minutes' purchase "'if he had been discovered to the government. "'But don't mistake me, Mr. Osbaldistone. "'I say the government is a good, a gracious, and a just government. "'And if it has hanged one half of the rebels, poor things, "'all will acknowledge that they would not have been touched "'had they stayed peaceably at home.' "'Waving the discussion of these political questions, "'I brought back Mr. Inglewood to his subject. "'And I found that Diana—' having positively refused to marry any of the Osbaldistone family, and expressed her particular detestation of Rochley, he had from that time begun to cool in zeal for the cause of the pretender, to which, as the younger of six brethren, and bold, artful, and able, he had hitherto looked forward as the means of making his fortune. Probably— the compulsion with which he had been forced to render up the spoils which he had abstracted from my father's counting-house by the united authority of sir frederick vernon and the scottish chiefs had determined his resolution to advance his progress by changing his opinions and betraying his trust perhaps also for few men were better judges where his interest was concerned he considered their means and talents to be as they afterwards proved, greatly inadequate to the important task of overthrowing an established government. Sir Frederick Vernon, or, as he was called among the Jacobites, his excellently Viscount Beauchamp, had with his daughter some difficulty in escaping the consequences of Rashleigh's information. Here Mr. Inglewood's information was at fault, but he did not doubt, since he had not heard of Sir Frederick being in the hands of the government, he must be by this time abroad." Where, agreeably to the cruel bond he had entered into with his brother-in-law, Diana, since she had declined to select a husband out of the Osbaldistone family, must be confined to a convent. The original cause of this singular agreement Mr. Inglewood could not perfectly explain, but he understood it was a family compact, entered into for the purpose of securing to Sir Frederick the rents of the remnant of his large estates, which had been vested in the Osbaldistone family by some legal maneuver in short, a family compact, in which, like many of those undertaken at the time of day, the feelings of the principal parties interested were no more regarded than if they had been a part of the livestock upon the lands. I cannot tell, such is the waywardness of the human heart, whether this intelligence gave me joy or sorrow. It seemed to me that, in the knowledge that Miss Vernon was eternally divided from me, not by marriage with another, but by seclusion in a convent. In order to fulfill an absurd bargain of this kind, my regret for her loss was aggravated rather than diminished. I became dull, low-spirited, absent, and unable to support the task of conversing with Justice Inglewood, who in his turn yawned, and proposed to retire early. I took leave of him overnight, determining the next day, before breakfast, to ride over to Osbaldistone hall. Mr. Inglewood acquiesced in my proposal. "'It would be well—' he said, that I made my appearance there before I was known to be in the country. The more especially as Sir Roshleigh of was now, he understood, at Mr. Jacob's house, hatching some mischief, doubtless. They were fit company, he added, for each other, Sir Rashleigh having lost all right to mingle in the society of men of honour. But it was hardly possible two such deed rascals should colleague together without mischief to honest people." He concluded by earnestly recommending a toast and tankard, and an attack upon his venison pasty, before I set out in the morning just to break the cold air on the words. End of volume two, chapter twenty. Recording by Eliot Miller.